Good morning. Have you ever accused someone of being out of their mind? Whether that was pointed at them directly or quietly whispered to someone else as you both looked on. We probably all have done this at some point. We are not unaccustomed to making such a statement about people we know today. You might think of someone you know who puts on their bucket list jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. And you ask, has she gone out of her mind? Or a person of modest income decides to purchase a luxury car obviously beyond their means. And you ask, has he gone out of his mind? There are lots of situations in which we might ask that question of someone we know. But we are shocked when someone asks that question of Jesus. In our scripture, we find the statement, people were saying he has gone out of his mind. I believe this shocking statement can help us to understand the magnitude of the huge contrast of Jesus' words and actions to the traditional expectations of a rabbi in his time. Our text tells us that some people were quite alarmed by his behavior to the point where even his family went out to restrain him. At this point, Jesus had become very popular. But with rising popularity also came criticism. His teaching was unlike anything they'd ever heard before. He broke the laws of ritual cleanliness. He violated the Sabbath. He spoke openly of a kingdom not of this world. He communicated directly and intimately with God. In a word, he didn't fit the mold. When it became clear that he had no intention of conforming to the expectations of the religious leaders, they began to say, he is insane, or worse, he is of the devil. Now, you know there's a thin line between sanity and insanity. And when it appeared, even to his friends, that he might be over the edge of that line, they sent word to Nazareth for his family to come at once. Most likely, his father Joseph was no longer living, and Jesus' sisters were married and had families of their own. So it fell to his mother and his brothers to come to Capernaum and take him home. When they got there, they found Jesus teaching in a a home. The place was packed. People were standing in the doorway and spilling out into the courtyard, straining to hear him. Mary and her sons couldn't get in. So they sent word, tell the teacher that his mother and brothers are outside. But surprisingly, when Jesus got this message, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then looking around at the crowd, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Who are my mother and my brothers? What do you make of that? On the surface, it seems like such a harsh and disrespectful thing to say, like a slap in the face. 
Did Jesus mean to reject his family altogether? In his book, The New Being, theologian Paul Tillich points out the fact that Jesus did not say, those outside are not my mother and brothers. In other words, he didn't deny the relationship he had with his biological family, but he actually expanded the family circle in that moment to include any number of others. In a world where family was and is the typically regarded primary structure of kinship and obligation, Jesus said something radically different. He pointed to a spiritual rather than a physical kinship as the basis for life in the kingdom of God. Paul echoed Jesus' sentiments when he wrote to the Romans, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are children of God. We might choose a benevolent interpretation of the family's action and suggest that they were merely concerned about Jesus. Was he taking good care of himself? Was was he in danger? In this case, the family would be taking an intervention action out of loving concern and support for him. Or it might also be true that they have a total lack of understanding for the nature of Jesus' ministry. In fact, we read in the seventh chapter of John, his brothers did not believe in him. It may have been really hard for them to get. I mean, imagine if your own family member ended up being Jesus Christ. I imagine Jesus growing up as a normal boy. His brothers who lived with him just thought of him as a brother. I'm sure they were surprised when he began preaching When they learned of some of the things he was saying, they wanted him to quit, if for no other reason than for his safety. They came as a group, ready to seize him, get him away from the crowds, and have him come to his senses. Jesus also alarmed the Pharisees, but we are much more familiar with their negative reactions to Jesus. The Pharisees from Jerusalem had made the considerable journey to Galilee to look into this Jesus sensation. And they said his power was not from a good source. He had been taken over by Beelzebul, an unclean demonic spirit, and they warned the crowds about him. Their reaction led Jesus to make his statement about the unpardonable sin. It's a statement that has frequently been misused to unnecessarily disturb many people. Lots of people worry that they have committed the unpardonable sin. When you become aware of the effects of sin, you often feel that your sin is unforgivable. Usually, that really means that we can't forgive ourselves. I believe God is often much more forgiving of our sins than we are. But read the passage carefully, and you will find that Jesus was saying that the religious leaders refused to tell the difference between God's work done by the hands of Jesus and Satan's work. 
So they were bearing false witness against this life-giving, life-restoring spirit of God. It is a perversion or twisting of spirit when one determines that their own purpose, purposes are to call the light darkness. By such intentional twisting of the truth, they have placed themselves in a position where they are incapable of receiving the forgiveness offered to them. So they don't experience the benefit of it in their life because they don't recognize the giver of these graces. In a circular way, then, the only unforgivable sin is to refuse the forgiveness of God. You yourself make it impossible to receive by refusing to receive it. It's like if you were incredibly thirsty and someone chose to place a glass of ice water in front of you in order to sustain you and you refused to drink it, not trusting that it was good to do because you had only used soda to try to quench your thirst previously. Those who refuse to accept the provision of God's spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation place themselves in a position where God cannot provide it to them. 